Morning, everyone. It does fit. I didn't think it would fit. Before I get to the sermon, I just was reminded again with some of the songs that we sang this morning of the relationship between William Cooper and John Newton. It is amazing how God gives us in his mysterious ways even gifts of friendship. For those who don't know, William Cooper wrote the first song we sang, When God Moves in Mysterious Ways. His wonders to perform, he plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds of never-failing skill, he treasured up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. And ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings, yea, in blessings and in blessings on your head. And he continues, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. The thing that makes the relationship between John Newton and William Cooper so remarkable is that Cooper suffered throughout his life with deep, deep depression. Deep depression. He was often, to the end of his life, hopeless. He still held on to God, but also felt very hopeless in the holding on to God. And yet God, in his sovereign grace and mercy, gave him a friend. In fact, a friend that lived, Cooper actually lived right behind Newton for a long period of time and would often be encouraging and speaking truth to him. So consider the author of Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. That very author how often he would speak those words of amazing grace to his depressed and weary friend, William Cooper. The point of the sermon this morning is that God moves in mysterious ways. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. God moves in mysterious ways. The Lord takes a 100-year-old man with an infertile wife And he turns their family into an inheritance of children, outnumbering the stars in the sky and the sands of the seashore. The Lord takes an insignificant red-faced shepherd boy and turns him into a mighty warrior king. The Lord takes a broken, sinful man living in the midst of a broken, wicked people and turns him into a much-needed prophetic mouthpiece. The Lord takes a poor, young virgin and turns her into the very mother of God. The Lord takes an outspoken and often foolish fisherman and turns him into a powerful fisher of men. What do Abram, David, Isaiah, Mary, and Peter all have in common? The tie that binds them is God moving in mysterious ways to save them. They're all sinners saved by grace. Everyone saved and redeemed is a beautiful testament to the mysterious grace of our God. So this morning, we're going to look at a sinner, another sinner, mysteriously saved by grace. His name is Saul. 
And as we look at his salvation story this morning, I want us to consider and think about this question. How does God mysteriously move in saving sinners? How does our God mysteriously move in saving sinners? Let me read Acts 9, verses 1-31. to Follow along, please. The story of God's bringing Saul to himself. And as I read this passage, think about that question. How does God mysteriously move in saving sinners? Acts 9, beginning in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if they found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and out the house of Judah look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call in your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taken food. He was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? 
But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates and night, day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through the opening of the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus." So that he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. How does God move in mysteriously saving sinners? In order to answer that question, I want us to consider five points this morning. Don't worry, they're not that long. The first one, God saves. Secondly, God saves through the power of His Word. Third, God uses people. Fourth, God saves His people to a purpose. And fifth, God builds His church through saving of sinners. God saves. God saves through the power of His Word. God uses people. God saves those people to a purpose. And God builds His church through the saving of sinners. Nothing new here, right? But I want us to slow down enough this morning, slow down enough that we can actually marvel at how profound, wonderful, and mysterious God's salvation of sinners truly is. I'm going to unpack those five points in a minute. But before we get there, I want to talk briefly about how Saul's conversion, his salvation story is both unique and at the same time paradigmatic. So what in the world do I mean by that? Saul's conversion is unique because he was set apart by God at a specific time, in a specific way, at a specific place, and for a specific purpose. The specific time was the first century. In a specific way, through a mysterious encounter. At a specific place on the road to Damascus. And for a specific purpose, to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. But I also believe Saul's conversion is paradigmatic. What that means is it follows a pattern that God has used throughout redemptive history to save His people. So these five aspects are patterns for us of how God and His mysterious salvation unfolds throughout history and unfolds throughout our own individual lives. So as we consider the wonder-working, mysterious salvation of our God, I want you this morning to consider the wonder of your own salvation. That amazing grace. 
hear how sweet that sound is. Consider, remember, reflect upon, and be moved by how wonderfully and mysteriously God, the God of heaven and earth, saved you. Because our God saves. The first point. We must never gloss over the wonder of God's salvation. We must never lose sight of how remarkable it truly is. Let's take a look and see how God turns Saul into Paul. But before we to really grasp that, to understand the weight of God's mercy, we need to go back to chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Chapter 8, 1 to 3. The blood of Stephen is freshly staining the rocks that destroyed his body. And then we pick up in verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul is ravaging the church. He enters house by house. Are you a follower of Christ? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus? And if you are bold enough to say yes, he drags you off to prison to face what may be a certain death. Men, women, he makes no discretion. Paul, looking back on his own life in Galatians, says this, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Passionate. Zealous. Dedicated for one purpose. Destroying the very people of God. Then Jesus comes to him in verse 4 of chapter 9. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now this is an entire side note to the sermon. But Jesus takes it personally when his church is persecuted. Saul didn't just approve of killing Stephen and countless others. He is guilty of murdering the body of Christ. He is persecuting Jesus. And anyone who persecutes the people of God, even to this day, are guilty of persecuting the risen Christ. But you know what? For those who are persecuted, that is hope. Because the persecuted Christ is the risen Christ. And he's alive forevermore. Those who die in Christ will live again in him. There's hope for the persecuted, hope for the suffering, hope for the weary. But back to passage verse six. The Lord tells Jesus, the Lord, I'm sorry, the Lord Jesus tells Saul, rise, enter the city, and you'll be told what to do. So Saul goes to Damascus and waits. Three days he's without sight. Three days he neither eats nor drinks. 
How remarkable this once great persecutor is left blind and helpless, dependent on others for his very existence. Oh, how the Lord humbles the proud of heart. God opposes the proud. We're going to go back to and talk about Ananias a bit more, but let's fast forward to verses 17 and 19. So Ananias departed and entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. He rose, was baptized. He took food and was strengthened. So Jesus appears to Saul. He sends Ananias to Saul would regain his sight, be filled with the Spirit. Immediately, scales fall from Saul's eyes. He believes. The text doesn't say it, but he believes. His spiritual blindness is metaphorically shown, removed and shown physically by the scales falling off his eyes. God moves in mysterious ways. The only thing we can say here is that salvation is of the Lord. He transforms wicked sinners, murderers of Christ Himself. Jesus transforms them and turns them into righteous saints. He takes those who are dead in trespasses and raises them to new life in Christ Jesus. So Paul would later confess, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. Salvation of any sinner by God is an act of the impossible. Matthew 19.26 is probably one of the most misquoted verses in all of the Scripture. With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. How many times have you heard that just thrown out completely out of context? Now, the passage Matt read, the context is actually salvation. The context of this verse is a rich young ruler coming to Jesus saying, what must I do to be saved? Jesus says, keep my commandments, sell your possessions, give them the poor, follow me. And he says, no thank you. Too much of an ask. The commitment to follow Christ is too much for me complete side note why don't we do that more in our evangelism actually ask people and show people and tell people the real commitment it takes to follow Christ too often where God has a good plan for you and it's all going to work out instead Jesus himself says sell everything you have give to the poor follow me the rich young ruler it's too much he can't do it He can't follow Jesus. He turns and we are told that he walks away sadly. Jesus himself is sad and the disciples are wondering what's going on. Jesus says, you know what? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And his disciples respond, who then can be saved? And now, verse 26, with man, this is impossible. Every single one of you sitting here or listening online 
If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a testament to the impossible. You are a testament that the God of heaven and earth reached down in grace and mercy and saved you because only by God's grace are all things possible. You sit here this morning because all things, salvation is possible with God. God saves in wonderful, miraculous, powerful, mighty, mysterious ways. Salvation is of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, remember how God has saved you and brought you into His own family as His beloved children. See how great the love of the Father is toward the children that we should be called children of God. His great love for you and for me. God saves. And how does God save? The second point, He saves through His Word. The power of His Word. In the case of Saul, the Word is both direct from Christ and indirect through Ananias. But in both cases, Saul is saved through the power of His Word to the point where Saul knows and can later confess the Gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the good news. The gospel that requires words. It's a message. We don't preach the gospel with our lives. We must proclaim it with our mouths. The gospel is the message of Jesus' perfect life, His sacrificial death, and His powerful resurrection. The gospel is a message to be heard. It's a message to be believed. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It is the word of Christ that saves. The gospel is powerful. Everything is exposed by the piercing word of God. God's word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God saves through the power of His piercing word. The third And fourth points are kind of tied together. Two sides of a coin, if you will. God uses people, and then He saves those people to be used to save other people. That's a little confusing, so I'm going to break it down into the third and fourth point. The third point is this. God uses people. This has been the God's remarkable plan throughout redemptive history. Scripture is full of stories with God taking broken sinners and using Him for His glory. Abram, Moses, Joshua, Samson, Deborah, Ruth, David, the list goes on. Read Hebrews 11. You'll see God unfolding His plan of salvation by using individual people. In the case of Saul, he uses Ananias in verse 10. We are told that Ananias was a disciple in Damascus. The Lord comes to him in a vision. Ananias, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. The Saul had a vision of you coming to restore his sight. But of course, Ananias has heard of this Saul. Look at verse 13. Lord, I've heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Do you get the reticence? Lord, you want me to go to the very man who will put me to death. And what does God say? Yes. 
yes. Ananias goes in faith, goes knowing full well that it could cost him his life. The Lord never promised him safety. The Lord never promised him security. He just told him to go. And Ananias, in faith, obeyed the Lord at great risk. What incredible faith and trust. So here's the point. God uses people. God uses means. He uses messengers. It's His plan to use us, His people. All of us. No follower of Christ is exempt. May we have such faith and boldness that Ananias had to be faithful to the Lord's call upon our own lives. And may He use us for His glory. Brothers and sisters, our prayer should be for God to use us. And it often is. How many times I've heard in prayer, I mean, we pray, God, we pray for opportunities. Let me tell you this. There are always opportunities we probably don't need to pray for. And what we actually need to pray for is boldness and faithfulness to take the opportunities. God always gives opportunities. We need to seize them with boldness, trusting and obeying the Lord, because He delights in using people. And the fourth point, God saves people to a purpose. You and I are saved to a purpose. Look at verse 15. The Lord tells Ananias, Go, for he saw as a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Verse 16, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So yes, these two verses are specific to Saul. But we know from the rest of Scripture that they are also in a real sense paradigmatic, a pattern for every believer in Christ. Saul is a chosen instrument of God. You are a chosen instrument of God. Ephesians 2.10 is clear. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in Him. Saul is a chosen instrument called by God to two things, to proclaim and to suffer. Are we as God's children any different? We too are called to proclaim the name that is above every name, and also, as we proclaim, to suffer for that name that is above every name. Our audience may be different from Saul. The way our suffering plays out in life may be different. But every believer in Christ is called to be a proclaimer and a sufferer. This is the call of the gospel upon us. We are called to proclaim. Every follower of Christ is an ambassador of the King of all kings. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are the ones who make appeal to others. We implore others on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is the responsibility of every believer in Christ. Every disciple of Jesus must be making disciples. We are called to proclaim. 
but we're also called to suffer. Jesus promises us suffering. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 15, 20. And Paul backs Jesus up. 2 Timothy 3.12 All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We are called to suffer, but not without hope. See, our hope in suffering is that we walk in the way of the Savior. As we suffer, we take up our cross daily, follow the Lamb of God who was slain, the Lamb of God who died. We walk to the death if we follow Jesus. But here's our hope. Jesus is no longer dead. And he promises that all in Christ will rise again with him. So yes, we will suffer. But yes, we will rise again to life in Christ for all eternity. So brothers and sisters, God hasn't saved you and I to sit back in comfort and complacency. He has called you to a purpose. He has called you to proclaim and he has called you to suffer. And as we proclaim and as we suffer, we have this assurance. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So here's my last point, my conclusion and application all wrapped into one. God builds his church through saving people. Look at what happens after Saul's conversion. Verse 20. He immediately... How often do we want to take new believers through the whole discipleship class before we actually get them out evangelizing and discipling? He immediately proclaims Jesus in the synagogues. And then... He is immediately persecuted. Verse 23. The Jews plotted to kill him. What remarkable irony in the plan and wisdom of God. The once great persecutor now becomes the persecuted. But look at verse 31. This is where the story of Saul's conversion is driving toward. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. If you go back to chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, all the church in Judea and Samaria was being persecuted. And now there is peace. And they're being built up. They're walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And it multiplied. It doesn't say the persecution necessarily stopped. But they had peace in the midst of in the mysterious ways of God, his church experiences peace, is built up, walks in the fear of the Lord, comfort of the Spirit, and multiplies. True biblical church growth isn't transfer growth. It happens all the time, right? Someone gets frustrated with, with what Pastor Will says, and then they go to Manoah. They get frustrated with Manoah. 
then they go to the other one. That's not biblical church growth. What do we call that? Transfer growth. That's not what we want. I'm not saying people from other churches can't come to Grace Chapel, but that's not what we want. We want true biblical growth. See, healthy church growth is growth through God's mysterious saving of sinners. When men and women believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and are redeemed to Him, that is true, healthy growth. See, church health and church life aren't measured by filled seats, overflowing baskets, and active programs. In fact, the church can have all that Meetings galore, committees all over the place, and still be very dead. A healthy, vibrant, living church is a church that God is using to bring sinners to salvation in Christ. That is what a healthy church looks like. A healthy church is a vibrant, living church that makes disciples. That each person in the pew knows that they are a disciple who needs to make other disciples. That that is part of the commandment of Christ upon their life. And knows that it is hard that their proclamation of the gospel comes with suffering in Christ. What is the mission statement of Grace Chapel? Grace Chapel exists to make disciples who know, love, and serve God in all ways of life. A healthy church is a disciple-making church. A vibrant church where every member is actively making disciples. A living church is where the Spirit of God is breathing new life into dead sinners, raising them to new life in Christ Jesus. Our prayer should be that God would so work in Grace Chapel, so work in ourselves, because that's where it's going to start. It doesn't start with me. It doesn't start with the elders. It starts with all of us loving God enough, being loved by Him enough to actively share and being willing enough and faithful enough to suffer the persecution that will one day come. This is what we are here for. We're not here to sit in a pew for an hour on Sunday. That's part of it. But we are here for so much more. One of the chief reasons God has called a people to himself is because he has called us to go out. Yes, we are called in to have a relationship with Him, but as we have that relationship and on the foundation of that relationship, in the context of that relationship, we must go out. We are called to live as His ambassadors. So brothers and sisters, we are called to proclaim because we are loved by Christ. We are called to suffer because we have been redeemed by the Lamb. We are called to mission because Jesus is alive. We are called to purpose because we are the beloved children of God. We are called to make disciples who know, who love, and serve God in all ways of life. No follower of Christ is exempt. Father, 
You move in mysterious ways, your wonders to perform. You have saved us. You have saved us through the power of your word. And in your sovereign wisdom, you use people. You have used people to save us to form your church. And you have brought all of us together for a purpose. We are saved to a purpose. To good works, we are to save to proclaim. We are saved to suffer. We are saved to make disciples. May we have such boldness to tell others of your mysterious ways and your wonderful salvation. So the church of God may truly be built up. Spirit of God, bring us peace. Spirit of God, build us up. Spirit of God, may we walk in the fear of the Lord. May we find boldness and comfort in you, Spirit. Multiply us, we pray, in the wonderful, mysterious name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.